This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I'll suck you up and I'll spit you out and I'll play with your babies till you scream and shout, oh yeah, oh yeah, till you scream and shout, oh yeah, oh yeah, Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. This week we have a full house. Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State University. Jessica Luther, independent writer and author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University. And Lindsay Gibbs, sports writer at Think Progress. I'm Shireen Ahmed, freelance sports writer. Before we begin, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind our new flamethrowers about our Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 and as high as you want, to become an official patron of the podcast. In exchange for your monthly contribution, you will get access to special rewards. With a price of less than a latte a month, you can get access to extra segments of the podcast, a monthly newsletter, an opportunity to record on the burn pile, only available to those in our Patreon community. So far, we've been able to solidify funding for proper editing and transcripts, but are hoping to reach our dream of hiring a producer to help us with the show. Burn It All Down is a labor of love, and we believe in this podcast. But having a producer to help us as we grow would be amazing, and we are so grateful for your support. This week, we will be discussing the NFL's anthem policy, Sterling Brown and Police Brutality. Lindsay and Jessica will take us into the U.S. Olympic Committee hearings and all the shit that happens there. And we will be discussing the Champs League final. And what do we do with our feelings? But before we begin, let's have a conversation about honoring athletes. And if you honor them (laughs) via sculptures and you honor them via plaques, what does that look like? And what should it look like? In most cases, we would say a plaque that's to honor the athlete should look like the athlete. And I'm referring specifically to Brandy Chastain's being honored by the Bay Area as a Hall of Fame and what happened with her plaque. Anyone, I I hear all the giggles. Anybody (laughs) want to jump in here? Because I'm just like, she ended up looking like Gary Busey. So I really don't understand. I don't either. I think the worst part is like, there's that one picture of her with it. And you just think like, how did she look at that? And then have it in her to stand there and smile next to that plaque. I She's just so gracious. Her. She's so gracious. She's so. I loved all the Twitter attempts to to find who it looked like more. And I know Shireen said Gary Busey, but my favorite is Mickey Rooney. It does look so much like Mickey Rooney. It was- 
And the thing is, is that Brandy Chastain is like an icon, <laughs> not just for the 99 really ones, but the way that she took off her shirt. Like for me, she's immortalized into my brain. And then I see this plaque of her and I'm like, what? Like, what it is so happening? bad. Like when I kept seeing it on Twitter, like somehow I was not getting that it was supposed to be her. <laughs> I was like, why do they keep bringing Brandy into this conversation about this terrible plaque? <laughs> It all happened on the same day that, or around the same time that Peter King from Sports Illustrated wrote his final MMQB Monday morning quarterback column. And it actually looked a lot like Peter King. <laughs> so that was my favorite. They were like, this is just an ode to Peter King because he's retired. He's leaving SI today. <laughs> I found out about it through Lindsay. Lindsay put something like OMG on Twitter. And I looked down and it took me like a long time to figure (laughs) out what was going on. I was like, who is that? And then I read Brandy (laughs) Chastain. I was like, oh, right. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, There was a really funny interview she did with Jimmy Kimmel. And uh, she was explaining that when she got up on the stage because they were honoring Harris Barton, Matt Cain, and Tim Hardaway. And she and they all kind of were general likeness. And then she got up and she didn't actually look at her own plaque. And then she looked down and she was kind of like, well, what the, what, what the, what? Like, what? Her expression is hilarious. And she was, like you said, very, very gracious. But I just would have been mortified. So I guess they're going to be doing one. And it was funny because Jimmy Kimmel says, do you know who the artist is and why he hates you? (laughs) Can I just preview our Champs League conversation by talking about Cristiano Ronaldo's statue of himself? He he deserves it, And maybe athletes. What? I said he deserves it. That's the difference. (laughs) No, he... he, I love you, Jess. Thank you for saying that because oh, I'm still salty over here. Yeah, we're about to go in on him hard. So I'm I'm going to preview a really a nasty thing about him. He did his own statue, which we can link to the show notes if people care. And he made his genitalia huge. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. What? You haven't seen this? He did no. his own statue. He commissioned his own statue in his hometown. <laughs> He has a museum there. See, I'm not actually mad at that part because I was definitely the kid with like the the magazine of like sports trophies and I would like order my own trophies for random things. Oh like God. everything I did. I just <laughs> am obsessed with I mean I had a healthy amount of ones that I actually earned, but I was just like, uh hell yeah, I should have a trophy for just being awesome. But wow. I never inflated my own body on it. Yeah, Mira, you were like goals. That's a I would have I want trophies. I'm going to order trophies for myself. (laughs) I'm going to do that today. I'm going to do that right now. But this is a good lesson for us that burn it all down. Because when we get our own plaques, we'll be very careful who is commissioned for this. This is what I'm thinking. So moving on. Amira, would you like to take us through the first topic, please? So this past week, the NFL once again... Could not stop itself from being douchey. Can I say that? Yes. <laughs> well, yes. I did. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> they passed a new national anthem policy that is requiring players to stand and quote unquote be respectful to the flag if they're on the field at the time of the anthem performance. Although they did give them an option to remain in the locker room if they would prefer. Although this was uh, portrayed as a compromise. I don't know how you can have a compromise if you don't consult players. You know, it's more a erasure of their protest. But anyway, the policy would subject a team to a fine if a player or any team person 
personnel fails to show proper respect for the anthem. This is vague. So would a fist in the air constitute uh, disrespect? It leaves it open for much interpretation. The NFLPA instantly issued a scathing response saying management has chosen to quash the same freedom of speech that protects someone who wants to salute the flag in an effort to prevent someone who does not wish to do so. The sad irony of this rule is that anyone who wants to express their patriotism is subject to the whim of a person who calls himself an owner. I know that not all of NFL CEOs are for this, and I know that true American patriots today are not cheering. Now, when they first broke this news, it was reported to be a unanimous uh, decision. Come to find out that that is just not true. They didn't even put it to a vote, instead opting to poll the owners. We know that the 49ers owner has, for instance, abstained from the vote. And so there seems to be a little kind of weird backroom happenings on this policy in the first place. Many players took to Twitter to complain about the policy, to speak about their lack of freedom of speech under this policy. And again, this policy is built on the false premise that players who are protesting during the anthem are somehow disrespecting the flag or disrespecting the troops. And that is a false premise. I don't know how many times we can say this. This is going on three years of having this conversation and players at this point have done town hall meetings, have written op-eds in the Players' Tribune, have talked at length that what they're protesting is police brutality, is anti-blackness, it's systemic racism. They're very clear issues. Helping along, even if people still do not understand quite exactly what they're doing, even though it's willful ignorance at this point, the same day that this policy was announced, we get a video of Milwaukee Bucks player uh, Sterling Brown being tased for parking in a bad way. And if this video did not illustrate precisely what players who choose to kneel or put their fists in the air are talking about, then having them released on the same day made it very, very stark. This is a terrible policy. I have many thoughts about it. And I have thoughts about the Sterling Brown video that was from an incident in January, but just released, like I said, this past week. So here we are once again, dealing with the NFL, also known now as the No Freedom League, and their boneheaded moves uh, to try to curtail protest, freedom of speech, and control their predominantly black labor force. I'm just over it. I, I really have, you know, I have many thoughts, but I'm running out of, of, of words to give. What do you guys think? I just wanted to touch on that and agree completely. Like you said, we've referenced the op-ed that Eric Reed wrote with the 49ers and why he kneeled with Cap first and what that was. And you're absolutely right. It's also putting the burden on the oppressed to keep explaining what's happening. And this is just, you know, it's more than willful ignorance. It's refusal to understand and and to, to actually take accountability. This isn't about disrespecting the flag at all. Like then what about some of the arguments on Twitter or what about those, you know, those flags that are made up of bananas or people that are disrespecting the flag. If you want to get very technical and legal about it, there's lots of disrespect. You you can't technically have boxer shorts that are made out of the star spangled banner. Like, I mean, it can, it can be anything. So this just goes to show that it's, it's so terrible. And I just wanted to touch really quickly on, Sterling Brown and how the Milwaukee Bucks actually 
released a statement, which I thought was really powerful and important because it goes to show that people do understand. Sports teams and organizations can understand. And what they said was, and I quote, the abuse and intimidation that Sterling experienced at the hands of the Milwaukee police was shameful and inexcusable. Sterling has our full support as he shares his story and takes action to provide accountability. Unfortunately, this isn't an isolated case. It shouldn't require an incident involving a professional athlete to draw attention to the fact that vulnerable people in our communities have experienced similar and even worse treatment. So I think that's really important. So this just goes to show that the No Freedom League is continuing to be a gong show. Lindsay? Yeah, I think it's just important to remember that as recently as 2015, the NFL was paying, taxpayers were paying the league through the Department of Defense for such things as military flyovers, flag unfurlings, emotional color guard ceremonies, enlistment campaigns, and national anthem performances. (laughs) So there was this paid patriotism that was going on that actually, you know, was revealed through a Republican oversight report by Senators Jeff Flake and John McCain, of all people, who said, yeah, this is paid patriotism. And this is wrong, like taxpayer dollars should not be going to this. And so that was just that was just a couple of years ago, this was happening. It wasn't until 2009 that it was that it was put into the guidebook or whatever it is, that players were encouraged to stand during the national anthem. Before that, a lot of teams would stay in the locker room. There was no codified thing. This has all been because of Department of Defense giving money and the NFL realizing they could benefit economically from the marketing of this faux patriotism. And so let's not act like this has always been a moment about pure love for the country. I actually think that what the players who are taking a knee or raising a fist, which I'd like to say that this anthem, this does not stop them from raising a fist (laughs) during the national anthem, like some of them have done. But, you know, I would like to say that that to me is much more patriotic than being paid to honor the service because they are actually wanting the country to be better for everyone. So anyways, this is just, I know we're not at the burn pile right now, but <laughs> that's that's the mood I'm in. Brenda? Yeah, I, I always think, too, that I'm really uncomfortable with this idea that somehow this is a time-honored tradition that is as old as sports itself. And the Star-Spangled Banner wasn't even the national anthem until the 30s. It's a drinking song. Get over it. You know what I mean? Get over it. It <laughs> just seriously, it's it's shocking to me that people have this idea that, you know, it's always been around forever and it's synonymous with the country and things like that. There's, you know, lots of ways to feel about a country. It's a country is a little bit more complicated than that. But anyway, I agree with everything that's been said. I just wanted to add that this isn't some like thing that's always been in sports. And if you go to other countries, unless they're playing international games, you don't have the the, the anthems. They're not played. It's weird. It's different. It's it's not like these aren't these aren't teams that are actually representing the nation. You know what I'm saying? Like they're representing cities or states. So it's 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 a bizarre thing that the US even has that 
in my opinion. So anyway, just throwing that out there that it's not like a foregone conclusion that this happens and it's not a global thing that everybody just throws out the anthem at whatever kind of pickup game you've got going on. That's true. Jess? Yeah, that's such a good point. One thing that I always find super strange is if you do just like a 5K run in the U.S., they do the national anthem beforehand. <laughs> like just the amount of times, the way that this has gotten looped into sport is is really like strange in so many ways. <laughs> the one thing that I wanted to mention in this conversation was, you know, the NFL with its idea of patriotism and respect and all this kind of bullshit that they're peddling. It's like I can't even hear it knowing that the team in the nation's capital for this league is still named after a slur for Native and Indigenous people. It's just like the audacity that these people have to try to take this moral positioning when they're still slurring Native and Indigenous people in this country all the time in the nation's capital. It just, I don't even know where to put all of my feelings about this. But I think about that every single time that I hear those words, and I just can't get over it. Amira? Yeah, I think that last year, it's interesting, the US Soccer Federation targeted Megan Rapinoe's kneeling in solidarity and passed a similar statute saying that all players representing the US Soccer Federation must stand and respect the flag on the sidelines. Um, I think it's also interesting that the NBA has similar policy, although that was something that was crafted in agreement with the players' union. So it's going to be very interesting to see going forward how various leagues negotiate this. And it certainly seems in particular with the NFL, in contrast to the NBA, that players have been systemically left out of this process. It's also, I think, important to know in the discussions of paid patriotism, you're you're precisely right, in Lindsay, that in 2009, the DOD does start um, funding these paid patriotism displays that results in the NFL actually giving back $700,000 to taxpayers for inappropriately using these funds. But we have to take a long look at this kind of spectacle in, in American sporting history. And a lot of it traces directly on to times of war. I mean, the first kind of recorded instance of standing and doing any sort of anthem was like in 1918 during a baseball game, which was around, right, drumming up druthers around World War One, And you can map on to, to uh, the history of this nation at identifiable war. And I say identifiable war because the nation is always at war meddling in other countries, but identifiable wars that we think about. When you ratch up the spectacle of the national anthem in the 70s and the 80s, um, the NFL really invested in, in infusing the Super Bowl with patriotism. In the cover of Times in the 70s called it the Great American Spectacle. And you had that for many years going into the 90s. So you did have patriotism really dripping around the NFL for many years. And then it stopped. And the reason why it stopped is because there was an anti-war fever in this country around 2007, 2008. And so if you think about the heyday of this being right after 9-11, and then when you get to 2008 and, and the kind of national mood has really changed the NFL can't tie its brand to patriotism and militarism in the same way. They're worried about their bottom line. And it's that DOD contract that comes in right when people are, you know, very anti-Iraq war and trying to 
re-infuse the league. They, the Department of Defense sees football as this great vehicle for, for selling nationalism. And the NFL sees its brand tied to it in, in that way. Lindsay? Yeah, and just, I feel like it's important to know that so much of this by the NFL was a direct reaction to President Trump. They're literally afraid of this baby's tweets. <laughs> and the fact that Trump has realized what a rallying cry, uh, you know, akin to lock her up, this is for his base. And lo and behold, after this policy was revealed and CNN called it, quote, a big win for Donald Trump, barf. The Trump goes on Fox and Friends or whatever that stupid morning show program is. And he says, well, even if they don't come out of the locker room, you know, if they aren't on the field standing, maybe they shouldn't even be in this country. So that even that's not enough. Like even this ridiculous policy that is clearly clearly infringing on freedom of speech we you know we we just like that's not even enough he's gonna keep moving the goalpost forward because he knows how much his base loves to be angry at rich black men so it's just so stupid that they're giving in to him in this way they should be standing by their players and you know if they do that this will go away eventually it's just so ridiculous which is funny um, because you might see it going around Twitter, but there's what's his face, some some Peter K, some representative who joins the long tradition of likening uh, protesting players to Nazis. Stephen King was Iro- Stephen King, yeah, Horrible. yeah, from Iowa, which is. Which is ironic given the fact that you might see this image going around Twitter that in uh, 1934, there was actually a German football club who was banned or somehow prohibited from playing because they failed to give the Nazis salute. And so there is many historical parallels at work here. Yeah, I just, uh, for me, part of the thing was also saying, just to echo what Lindsay was saying about Trump and his being the only non-American on this team, it's really interesting because this amount of American exceptionalism that creeps in but is exploited is so gross. And then you get into these discussions about what that means and what does it mean to be American? And I mean, just with Trump saying that if the players don't come out of the change room, they should be deported. So he's basically willing publicly to say that he wants to like expunge people from their own country who are trying to exercise the first amendment like from someone who's not american i'm like this can't be real but it is all too real and it's 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 ridiculous amira do you want to wrap us up yeah i just want to end by quoting malcolm jenkins who's been an outspoken player on this issue for years now and he said i will not let it silence me or stop me from fighting this has never been about taking a knee raising a fist or anyone's patriotism but doing what we can to affect real change for real people brenda take us through the champs league final without breaking anything please <laughs> I don't I mean I don't know what to say about it. It's like Real Madrid versus Liverpool is like gross and grosser. I I don't like either of them. I know Mohamed Salah. I I know that we love him on the show and all humans should. 
But besides him and Monet, is there any reason to like either of those teams? Well, I like I like Jurgen Klopp's tracksuits. Like he looks like he's coming out to go to the arcade instead of like I, you know. I guess so. It's, he's just it, it was three yeah. one, and it was it was a disappointing game because the major plays came on disgusting intentional fouls from Sergio Ramos, really poor goaltending, and two quite good goals from Gareth Bale who I don't like so <laughs> in, in no way in no way was it a good a good match for me except that it's over so uh, I would just like to say that following the match uh, Cristiano Ronaldo who is the champion league's all-time highest scorer did not score so maybe that's okay but he was asked if he was disappointed not to have scored and he said quote and this just like sums up why they're they're so easy to hate Who's disappointed? Perhaps they need to change the name of the Champions League to the CR7 Champions League. Who has the most titles and who has the most goals? End of quote. Wow. Sorry, I'm still just thinking about his his manufactured bulge. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that's actually an extension of the manufactured bulge. Like, like, like. Who cares about teamwork? Like, who cares that it's 11 players? It's a CR7. Even though I didn't score and I kind of had a shitty game, it's still all about me. And that's like, for me, that's Real Madrid all the time. I don't know. And then yeah, Mohamed. I, so talk. let's talk Salah, Shireen. Um, Mohamed Salah was, you know, golden boot possibility like just everything with him was we were so excited about because you know Liverpool hasn't been to the Champions League final in over a decade I think it was just there's a lot of excitement about it and there's all these conversations that are really interesting happening about Mohamed Salah and for me and Sadio Mane it's really important Sadio Mane is probably has emerged for me in this this is the one beacon light he's the first Senegalese to ever play in the Champions League final and his passing with Mohamed Salah in the first 20 minutes of the match was was incredible. It was wordless. It was like this expressions of dedication and passion and the two of them were hustling. It was a beautiful thing to see. And luckily, Sadio Mane did score. He tied it up to 1-1 and it was it was gorgeous like it was just it was wonderful. But that being said, the takedown of Mohamed Salah by Ramos was awful. It Oof. looked like some MMA move. It Terrible. was horrible to which reports are saying that it's a dislocated shoulder and Salah won't actually be able to compete. There's a possibility he might not be healed for the World Cup. The first match is on the second day of the World Cup against Uruguay, which is actually the day of Eid, which is really interesting. So all of us who are going to be pretending to be at prayer will be like on our phones watching the match. <laughs> but, um, I think the other thing too is you know, this is Egypt going to the World Cup. And I mean, to put so much pressure on one person, this was actually a good reminder. I'm trying to be positive because remember, as Lindsay coined me, Shireen, half glass full Ahmed. (laughs) I think that you can't put all your eggs in one basket in that way. And then as a professional athlete, there's always a possibility he could get injured. It's just, it was really heartbreaking and infuriating in the way that he got injured. Like Ramos didn't even get called on a foul. How could he not have? How did he not get a red card? For those of you that didn't see it, he dragged Salah down to the ground, pulling on his arm. This is a game that doesn't even involve your upper body. (laughs) 
Well, I mean, I just, if we look at Ramos and his reputation for being that type of dirty defender, and for all of you listening that are Real Madrid fans, clearly this show has no love. The one exception and personal conundrum I have is Zidane, whom I love. And we'll we'll get into Zidane as well, because there was conversation happening on Twitter, which greatly disturbed me, and it was disrespecting Zidane, because there was comments that Gareth Bale's hit, which is less than two minutes after he got off the bench, he was a sub was better than Zidane's Leverkusen 2002 Champs League final goal. And I can't have that. Like, I'll just tell you all right now, I can't have anyone disrespecting Zidane. There's no, there's just, I can't. And Gareth Bale's strike was amazing. I dislike him less because he's Welsh. So I, I just think he's really interesting as a player. I don't love him, but he was a beautiful strike. Oh, like, yeah. and he wasn't even facing the net. Nope. It was a beautiful goal. I'm going to give him that. But I, I don't have room to discuss him. It's like it's like versus apples versus mangoes. You don't compare the two. You just don't. So there's all that happening. And I'm I, I'm calm now. I was really angry angry yesterday about the, the way it all turned out. Also, Benzema's goal, if anyone did not see it, was legitimately off the gaffes of Loris Carius, yeah. who is the goalkeeper. And my daughter's a goalkeeper, and she was watching, and she, like, texted me last night, and she's like, Mama, these are, like, fundamental errors. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't. And she felt terrible because at the end of the match, he walked around the stadium crying and apologizing to right. local fans. It was too much for me. It was just, <laughs> I don't know how to react when professional athletes, like, make these fundamental mistakes on the biggest stage, it is too heartbreaking to like watch. And I, I it was just, I just kind of couldn't stop thinking about it the rest of the night. And of course now he's getting death threats. Cause of course he is. And uh, I don't know. I don't know how you recover from this, but I would like to offer to comfort him if he needs some comfort, <laughs> uh, you know, just putting it out there to well, the universe. He's easy on forwards and the eyes. Yeah. Oh, so easy on the eyes. Oh, Brenda. Oh, Brenda. Oh, wow. It was a shitty game. God, God. It was a, it was, but I mean, why wasn't he pulled? Why wasn't he pulled? I just, I don't. Anyway, I would have pulled him right I mean, out. I think, I know, but I think Klopp was like, okay, you're allowed to have one miss. Like his goal, and what I'm saying, folks, for those of you that didn't see it, Benzema was being his typical Benzema himself, and you know, attacking as he should. He's he's a forward, so. Carius tried to roll the ball out on the deck, like roll the ball and distribute it. But he didn't do very good job because like five yards in front of him was Benzema who got the ball and tapped it right back in. At that point, there's no offside. He's not offside no. because the ball is in front of Benzema. So it's in play. And Carius started freaking out at his team and we're all watching going, who are you yelling at? That's totally on you. So He got the assist. Carius literally got an assist for that yeah, goal. he got the assist. Wow. And the thing is, is Lindsay, you were talking about on the world stage. But the thing is, Karius had the ball in his possession and he's a last defender. Like these are things you learn in under 10 goalkeeping camp. I'm not saying camp. he didn't make like, mistakes. I'm make saying it's sure. hard to see this. Like it's hard. It physically hurts like to watch somebody oh, yeah, like absolutely. have these mental breakdowns. Cause I mean, that's what it is. I'm not saying like, I mean, he obviously, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm not saying he was right <laughs> by any means. No, he fucked up, but I just, yeah. I just, I don't, I, I just, goalies, the whole thing about, I mean, goalies just, I, I don't know how you're a goalie. Like, that's just yeah. that position, that that job, and I, I don't know. Yeah. 
I've said this before and I'll reiterate, I totally agree with you. Being a goalie is like ridiculous. You have to be a different type of person. But I also have a lot of empathy for the mothers of goalkeepers <laughs> who have to watch their children in that. And I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine, our daughters trained together. And Doris said to me, I can't believe you don't drink because she has a thermos on the sidelines. That's amazing. Wow. Sometimes. Wow. Yeah, because, because and I obviously I don't drink, but I it was just you have to manage other ways. It's and I felt really bad for Carius. I honestly did because he's going to live with us, and I really, really hope he has the support he needs because this is this is a doozy. Like this is a real doozy. <laughs> Once again, if he needs some extra support, um, he needs yeah. some extra practice. <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's, it wasn't just one mistake. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it was really, I, okay. I just, I, it was. Is he, is he German? Yes. Is he playing for Germany? Will we see him yeah. in the World Cup? Probably not. No. He hasn't been used much, right, Shereen? I mean, he's technically, I, has he been called up? He's third string. And, and, and just uh, Team Germany boasts Manuel Neuer, who is the top goalie in the world. No. And is never going to come out of net cool. until okay. he's like 90. So he doesn't so, have to go like compete in the World Cup after this. Right, like, so we're not gonna. No, I mean, he'll get a break. I mean, I don't know if he's been if he's been called to the team. I mean, if he's called to the team, he's gonna go. But I don't think he'll see a second of right, time that's on the pitch. I, mean. I can tell you that much. I think he was just U sixteen. I don't think he's ever okay. even okay come out right as a full. But I, I don't know. But not now. Not now. Yeah, I just feel <laughs> like he'll get to go. He'll get to stay home probably, and and everyone will focus on the World Cup. Yeah. A yeah, I've never seen him. He's never played for the senior side. Thanks. He played, you know. How old so, is he? Um, yeah, so I w- wouldn't see that that happening. So he'll have lots of time for Lindsay to talk him through. <laughs> what he, what what he needs to do, what he needs to do next. Uh, <laughs> and I'm just gonna I'm gonna end this segment with saying, you know, for Real Madrid and their, you know, winning this, I hope they drop that trophy under bus somehow which they're notorious for so just gonna say that shireen glass half full ahmed again um (laughs) glass glass half anybody but real madrid moving on to our next segment Jess? Yeah. So this week in Washington, D.C., the House Commerce Committee held a hearing about sexual abuse in Olympic sports. Our own Lindsay Gibbs was there and reported extensively about it this week for Think Progress. And we're going to link all of her work in our show notes. The heads of the U.S. Olympic Committee, USA Gymnastics, USA Taekwondo, USA Swimming, USA Volleyball, and the U.S. Center for Safe Sport were all present because, as we've said repeatedly on Burn It All Down, the issue of sexual abuse goes so far past gymnastics. Though I do want to point out that there, you know, gymnastics was under the spotlight, and rightly so. Carrie Perry, the CEO of USAG, who took over in December of 2017, used the excuse repeatedly that because she just took over only a few months ago, she doesn't know much about what happened before she got there. It's just the balls the brazenness of it all. Overall, the hearing was meh. I mean, Lindsay reported, quote, there was a disturbing lack of urgency from all of the assembled Olympic leaders to take blame for past sins and enact policies and procedures to make their sports safer, which is sad given other reporting that came out this week. The Indy Star once again with a bombshell showing that USA Gymnastics allowed Larry Nassar to set the narrative around why he would not be attending a gymnastics event while under investigation for child sexual abuse. Nassar didn't want to say that he 
was missing it for, quote, personal reasons, so suggested instead that they say he was sick because, and I quote, that would make more sense to everyone. The attorney for USAG agreed. And Lindsay has a piece about the troubling safe sport materials that USA Swimming created that essentially grooms kids to implicitly trust coaches, which is anathema to teaching kids to question abusive behavior, which is at the heart of a lot of what we've been talking about. So, Lindsay, I want to hear more from you. Uh, Will you tell us about a little bit more about the USA Swimming stuff, but also your experiences this week at the hearing? Yeah, thanks, Jess. I So let's just start with this USA Swimming material. So I was alerted to this actually by a survivor of sexual abuse by USA Swimming coaches. It was, was She was abused in the 80s and is now an advocate. And she's done work with uh, USA Swimming and with Safe Sport. They have brought her to speak at, you know, events to kind of tout the sa- the progress they've made. And then she sat down and she was really looking at this Safe Sport material. And it was, she was like, wow, I think her exact quotes, her name is Danny Bostick. And her exact quote to me was that Safe Sport is actively promoting the same behaviors and attitudes that put me at risk and gave my predator access to me. Which that that quote just really like stayed with me. I mean, essentially, what what Safe Sport is doing is it's it's having just for a minute. It, it gets a little complicated. So there is the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, which is just launched last year. It took seven years to launch, and it independently. I'm using air quotes because it's still funded, and there's a lot of governance overlap with the USOC, but it is independent from all the individual sport governing bodies. So that they are there to investigate claims of sexual abuse and sexual misconduct by people within the sports. So that is their like primary job. However, each individual sport also has a safe sport program. And within those programs, they deal with any safety concerns that are not sexual abuse, but they're also supposed to be the arm that is educating everyone about ways to prevent sexual abuse. And as Jess said, a big part of sexual abuse, especially within swimming, has been grooming. And a lot of what these the problem has been is that 65% of sexual abuse cases in swimming, USA Swimming, have been at the hands of coaches. And many of these are quote unquote relationships. So what happens is within USA Swimming, it has been so normalized for a 25-year-old coach to fall in love with his 14, 15-year-old student and for them to stay together. This has just been a normal thing to the point that it wasn't until 2014 that this was a fi- that it became an official rule that no matter the age, a coach and a student, so somebody with that power dynamic could not be together. So even if the age of consent somewhere is like 16, you can't do that, which seems like a good rule to me. I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> But these materials were guiding conversations that were supposed to be helping these young athletes between the ages of 6 and 11 is when most of these materials are geared for. They're supposed to be helping them set emotional and physical boundaries. And yet within these materials, so much of it was talk to your coach. Your coach is the one you can trust. Your coach should be able to take care of you at any time. Your coach should be the person who you can talk to, not just about swimming, but about all stressors in your life. <laughs> and it's just 
mind boggling wow. to read through this because, of course, in a completely ideal world, this dynamic would be fine. But that's not the world that Safe Sport is set up to address. <laughs> and so, teaching these young kids through activities that the coach is the leader and the one you should trust above all else. That's just teaching them to accept the grooming. And so that was just really, really bothersome. So one of the things was at this hearing, the head of USA Swimming touted this their safe sport program 15 times in his opening statement as a reason why oh, USA wow. Swimming should be completely trusted and why they are doing the right thing. So it just gets back to the fact that nobody knows anything that's happening. I, I talked to a couple of victims after the hearing, and it was really, they were not happy with the way the hearing went. As Jess mentioned, there was a staggering lack of urgency from all of these leaders. Everyone seemed so afraid to say the right, the wrong thing that they instead gave vague answers such as, we're working on that. Or, yes, you're right, that is disturbing. We'll do better in the future. There were no concrete timelines given. Nobody truly took accountability. And I just don't know where this leads us. If at this point in this process, these leaders still don't have the urgency and the ability to make changes quickly, then where do we go? Yeah, I wanted to ask you what the point of the hearings were. I I know like, you know, part of it was to make these people sit in front of Congress and answer questions because USOC is funded by Congress, correct? But like, was there anything beyond that? Like, what is Congress trying to figure out at this point? Is it are they trying to figure out about whether or not to continue funding or what it is, what rules should be changed? Like, can you just give me an idea of why yeah, they to were the doing best this? Of my ability because <laughs> it's all still a little uh, fuzzy, to be honest. But so there are three separate congressional investigations going on right now that were spurred by the Larry Nasser case. What we have one, two in the House and one in the Senate. That seems confusing. Well, yes, <laughs> I agree. I too am confused. So a what was supposed to happen this week was we were supposed to have two back-to-back congressional hearings, one in the Senate, which was supposed to be deal with a lot of the people who have been fired and let go or resign. So a lot of the people from the past. And then this one in the House, which was supposed to deal with a lot of the current leaders to see where they were and to see what they were willing to admit, to see what they were willing to accept responsibility for, and to see what plans they had in place going forward. So unfortunately, the first one was postponed. So the Senate hearing, which was the one I was probably the most looking forward to, because it seemed like it would have been the most productive as far as getting answers about what happened in the past. That was postponed indefinitely. They are, I think, going to have to use subpoena power to get some of these people to appear. So that's fun. And then the the congressional hearing in the House, which is the one that did go on, and that was on Wednesday. This was a lot to see. First of all, how is the Center for Safe Sport doing? How is it funded right now? What is going on with it? And also to try and get these leaders to admit under oath, because these hearings are under oath, (laughs) what has been done and what is being done 
to make things safer. I see. So, I mean, I see. one of the big things is Carrie Perry, who is the gymnastics CEO, as you mentioned. She's not given a press conference or talked to media at all since she took the job in December of 2017. So this was a very rare wow. opportunity to get her to answer questions and for people to be able to hear it. She actually ran away from the hearing afterwards and still didn't talk to media. And the answers she gave during the hearing were very, very, very lacking. However, at least we got her to answer some sort of questions. Yeah, I just have a, have a question. Why was the Senate committee postponed? And sorry if you've already explained that. Why was it postponed? What they do, as far as I understand it, is they first send out letters to come. And the hope is that these people will come on their own will and they are not going to have to do subpoena power. So it seems like they were trying. Oh, so they won't so, come. Yeah. So what I've heard and I, you know, I've been getting different answers from this. It was hard to find any answers. But what I've heard from people close to the situation is that there's a few things at that are that are holding this up. First of all, it's Scott Blackman, who's the former CEO of the U.S. Olympic Committee. He actually does have cancer right now. So he is, you know, that is an actual thing he is dealing with. And so that does make, of course, travel difficult. Of course, you would think that there's some, I don't know, technologies, you know, that we could use to like phone him in or, you know, video conference him in. But they weren't able to get that worked out before Tuesday's hearing. And also, it seems that the former CEO of USA Gymnastics also was not willing to just come on his own will. So like I said, they're going to have to take further steps, it seems, to do subpoena power or and I don't know what the timeline for that will be. Any other questions? I feel like this is a good way for me to do this. <laughs> yeah. So what's what's next, Lindsay? Like, what are we looking at next? If like we're not going to get uh, heads of federations and the USG, you know, director, she's not she's running away from everything. How do we make change? Like, are these sessions? You said they're helpful in the sense of getting people to answer questions. But what what are we looking at next? And what type of closure do victims get? Not much. I mean. So the thing is, from victims, on the one hand, the victims I talked to were very disappointed with how easily it seemed like the heads of these organizations got off within this congressional hearing. But at the same time, they could recognize like what a huge deal it was that this has even reached the level of a congressional hearing. So Jessica Howard, who is one of the Nasser survivors, who was at this hearing, and she she came forward pretty early on in the process. And she did. She expressed to me that any attention this is getting is still a massive accomplishment for those who came forward. And the fact that we have Congress behind us trying to legislate change, she said, quote, it makes me believe in the good that can come from these situations. And I honestly didn't think that was possible. So I don't want to, in all of my criticisms of this uh, hearing and of where these leaders are, to deny the fact that the only reason we're here is because these survivors have spoken up. And that is, we just need to continue to remember how strong they've been and how incredible that is, and continue to push for more. I think we as people in media, as fans, we have to keep clamoring for more accountability. We have to keep clamoring for Perry to give an actual press conference. We need to keep clamoring for timelines, because the truth is the only time any changes have been made 
were when basically this Nasser trial reached peak, the peak in January because of these victims. That's what got the attention of Congress. And that's what got attention of, you know, the media and of everyone. And that's what forced some changes to be made. So I think it's really up on all of us to make sure that these survivors are not screaming into the wind and that we help amplify their voices and help keep pushing forward for accountability. Ultimately, there need to be systemic changes. We need to figure out ways to give more power to the athletes, which I think in my mind means a lot more oversight and fairness in things such as not just travel, things where you know people are vulnerable, but the selection of teams for these, you know, things. People are always so afraid to, to speak up because they're afraid I, th- the same people I'm speaking out against are the people who are picking me, picking the teams for the Olympics, you know? So we've got to make sure that all of these processes are much more transparent, that they give more power to the athletes themselves. And we really need to make sure that we can clear house as far as the people who were there who were involved in these cover-ups who sat by idly when the u.s olympic committee and usa gymnastics said it is not our job legally to protect these kids from sexual abuse (laughs) we need to make sure all those people are out the door and that we have fresh faces in but i think the other thing that this points to is the opportunity to really reevaluate the way that we fund and consider the ussoc and amateur sports and, and olympic sports in this country i mean Congressional hearings are great, but Congress has its own damn issues. And there's been a long history of not paying attention to this unless there is some sort of crisis, right? And this got national media attention was a black eye and all of a sudden they're spurned to action. I mean, there, there needs to be so much more oversight and investment. And really, like, this is why there's in other countries like departments that are literally in charge of the kind of export of sport. And we have clung to this idea that somehow, again, because we're exceptional and American, that we're like super democratic and the way that we manage um, our Olympic sports is, is somehow different. But there needs to be, you know, targeted oversight and, and resources and kind of monitoring that doesn't just happen in a moment of crisis. And it's, and it's about abuse, but it's also about spending. It's, it's exactly the issues that, you know, you brought up. Lindsay. And so I'm really curious to see, I mean, I don't have any optimism in this regard, but you know, it would be also a moment to just talk about the function of the USOC in general, talking about the way that currently um, the, you know, everything's set up and it's just, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the, one of the things that did come from this hearing was finding out how much the center for safe sport was operating with right now. So the CEO, Shelly Full, said that originally when it was launched last spring, that the organization, the Center for Safe Sport, was, was receiving about 20 to 30 complaints of sexual abuse every month. But after the Me Too movement and Nasser's victims speaking up, they're now receiving 20 to 30 complaints per week. They only have still about wow. four. They only have about 14 people on staff. That includes like support staff. Seven of their investigator outsourced. I think they still only have like four or five full-time investigators. The caseload for each of these people is just astronomical. And that was one of the frustrating things about this hearing was sitting there and everyone was like, oh, well, how do we make sure that you have more funding? And how do we make sure that this center is not just funded by the USOC? Because that's not independence. You know, if the money's still coming from the USOC, that's not 
that's not independence. And the obvious reason is Congress just should not give the money to the USOC to give to this center. Congress should directly fund this center so that it is independent from the USOC. And yet that answer just yeah. didn't seem to be uh, floated. I mean, Congress did say there were a few of the representatives who said things like, you know, let us know how much money you need and we will figure out ways to get that to you. And I really hope that going forward that that's what happens because this as long as there's so much overlap between the Center of Safe Sport and the U.S. Olympic Committee, we're not going to really be making any progress at all. And that's the most disappointing thing. And look, there's there's tons more we could talk about. I could talk about this for hours. But ultimately, I'll just end with a quote that one of the lawyers told me. So John Little, who's been one of the lawyers for a lot of victims who have been suing people within the Olympic movement. And he said, Congress created the USOC and they can end the USOC. And that's true. And we need Congress to recognize its power. And as, as Amira said, it's terrifying to be relying on Congress for anything these days. But if we can't agree that like athletes trying to get go to the Olympics should not be sexually abused, then I don't know where we I don't even know if we have any starting place at all. Okay, on to our favorite part of the show where we actually burn things. Brenda. I'm not even 100% sure how to formulate this burn, but I feel like everyone's going to know what I mean. I would like to burn the reaction to the Formula One banning of grid girls. Oh. Do you know... Do, do you know... <laughs> You sound surprised, Lynn. Uh, well, I, I just I hadn't heard the story. And- okay, so supposedly, I, I don't know that I would even call it a ban. So uh, what I'm about to actually burn is the way in which it's been reported and reacted to. But in any case, supposedly they are not using grid girls. Now, grid girls, I guess, are women, in fact, and not girls at all, who are scantily clad and kind of raise those signs up. Do you you know what I mean? Yeah. All right. This makes sense. I didn't know that's what they were called. I had no idea what they are. Anyway, the reaction to this has been to blame feminists for ruining things that are good. (laughs) Feminists are amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is the reaction from places like, you know, and they're not media outlets that we probably, uh, you know, read a lot with respect. But anyhow, I can link them to the show, but I don't really want to give them a bunch of clicks either. But this is like the independent quote. These sexy young women who have traditionally been a fixture of the racing scene didn't perform any ostensible function that actually has any impact on the sport, but simply stood trackside, presented the odd trophy and gave male punters something pretty to look at while the cars were at the under the other end of the track. But then the article goes on to say that this is, in fact, a a mean thing that middle-class feminists are doing by ripping away opportunities from these young women. That it's actually <laughs> middle-class feminists. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so glad you're laughing already. Really. Because, like, it means I don't have that much explaining to do. So it's like, fuck you guys. First of all, Formula One never ever, ever listens to feminists. That's not why this decision is being made. 
this is being made for I don't know what, but something to do, I'm sure, with like trying to attract a female audience, trying to capture new market segments. There is never a room in which they're like, you know what? Screw our finances. Let's focus on the real moral value at stake here, feminism. (laughs) So don't blame feminism when it's not in charge of Formula One. So I, I, I just, I saw, and I saw like eight articles. So I want to burn, um, blaming the Me Too movement. They blamed the Me Too movement and Harvey Weinstein for ruining male pleasure with grid girls and uh, pitting women against each other once again. So I want to burn all the media surrounding that and all the blame on feminism when feminism doesn't make these decisions. Burn. Burn. I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm kind of fine taking uh, responsibility for this. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to go next after I recover from the shock that feminism is not in control of Formula One. So I, other than the metaphorical burn of Sergio Ramos forever, I hope he descends into the deepest pits of hell for hurting Mosala, but that's okay. And that's, that's okay. I'm not allowed to swear because it's Ramadan, but I can, I can say that. What I wanted to actually burn was a friend of mine, Hadra Khan, is actually captain of the Pakistan women's football team. And she was approached by the Pakistani Football Federation, which was actually banned by FIFA, but now has been reinstated. And they were banned for, that ban was overturned and their activities for the men's team have resumed. But they approached her to do a promotional video. And what ended up happening is she took the opportunity to ask them, well, what about any calendar events for the women's team? And they have the Asian Games 2018 that are just in in a few months from now. And they haven't heard anything from the Federation on organizing training camp, anything, nothing. So she asked that particular official and he was just like, you know, there's nothing there. There's the South Asian Federation games that are scheduled to happen. There's a couple. Now, the Pakistan women's team hasn't had any type of interaction or matches since November 2014 when the country wow. hosted the South Asian Women's Football Championship in Islamabad. So that's almost four years ago. And instead, they keep coming at her saying, can you do this? Because she's by far the country's most successful female footballer. She's been mentioned a bunch of times in our Baddest Woman of the Week. She's the first female player to play overseas in the foreign league. She played in the Maldives and was asked to try out for Bundesliga. So they keep asking her for her face to help them with the campaign while completely ignoring the fact that she's captain of the women's side. So I want to burn this because like the sexism is glaring and obvious. And I, it's it's infuriating to not be able to give these women the chances they so desperately are trying to get. So I want to burn that. Burn. Burn. Amira? Yeah. So generally burning all of the NFL crap, but also on the game five or whatever game it was of the Rockets Warriors, TNT panned to the sideline and we're all too happy to shout out and spot Justin Timberlake and JJ Watt. And then just like continue to talk about them, completely ignoring that Kalia Ojai, who is Houston Dash um, soccer extraordinaire captain and professional player, by the way, 
I know it's infuriating. Um, <laughs> Cameo by right your son. Cameo <laughs> was right next to JJ uh, Watt, and instead played it like that was he was just JJ Watt's girlfriend, just a piece of arm candy. Like she's a professional athlete, and I think I'm equally burning the reaction to attempt to normalize it and say, "Oh well, they couldn't be bothered to know." Like, are you serious? Have you not heard know. a TNT broadcast? They come out with random stats. All you have to do is Google her like i like it's it the normalization of it of like oh it's not their fault that they didn't know she was a professional athlete so everybody should just get over it like there's all like all these things and it's like no like actually first of all they can google second of all you know even if they you know got it wrong the answer is not to say oh it's okay that they got it wrong the answer is to say yeah they should probably figure out how to google or hey we should get more uh, nwsl games on stations invisible so that people have no excuse to not know who she is and so that was annoying and i'm burning it down burn when's Yeah, so this is actually related to the same broadcasters. (laughs) But last night, in the middle of Game 6 of the Western Conference Finals, when Shaq and Charles Barkley and their whole crew was talking about Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. How are you feeling, Amira, by the way? How are you doing? (laughs) I'm fine. They have to come back to the bean. Thank you very much. Yeah, that is true. (laughs) So they were previewing that and they mentioned that Kevin Love was going to be out of game seven because he was in concussion protocol. Uh, Kevin Love had a nasty hit to his head in game six and was sent out early from that game, was put into concussion protocol. And thank goodness these protocols are in place because as we all know, concussions are incredibly serious, serious issues. Well, what did this group of announcers say? Shaq goes, quote, Nothing is keeping me from Game 7. I'm going to Walgreens to get some Advil. Oh. What? (laughs) What? (laughs) Like, Kevin Love is purposefully like, yeah, I don't want to play. Keep me out. No, no, no. These protocols are in place to protect players and their brains from themselves and from this game, which at the end of the day is not as important as them actually having brains when they leave the sport. And this is particularly bothered me because the implication here is that Kevin Love is weak. And we know that Kevin Love has been open about his mental health struggles this year. So I just want to burn that whole thing. We should be well beyond joking about concussions and implying that not playing through concussions makes you weak. Burn. Burn. Chess? Yeah, so I'm here to once again throw the NCAA on the burn pile. I could be burning Patrick Kuby's latest at Deadspin or what he reports on about how the NCAA, about the NCAA and how little it cares about CTE and other long-term brain injuries that its athletes sustain while playing in college. You should read that piece and we'll link to it in the show notes. But instead, I want to tell you about C.J. Harris. He's a football player from Georgia. He got a walk-on offer from Auburn. He was thrilled about the opportunity until he received word that he will no longer be offered this because, he says, he uses cannabis oil, which is banned by the NCAA, and so he can't play. You see, Harris began to have seizures in high school and was diagnosed with epilepsy. He had 14 seizures and tried a whole host of medications before his doctor suggested he start on cannabis oil back in January of 2017. He hasn't had a seizure since. 
According to SB Nation, quote, the NCAA has exceptions to its drug policy for players who use specific drugs for medical reasons, but it classifies marijuana as an illicit drug and doesn't have a medical exception for its use. There are reports that once Auburn found out about his epilepsy, they rescinded the offer in order to protect Harris's health, which is something all on its own because... What about all the other players? <laughs> but okay. So either way, I just feel really terrible for this kid. And I hate how draconian the NCAA is about certain things and totally uninterested when it comes to others. So burn. Burn. Now it's time to amplify and elevate some incredible women. I actually just wanted to mention, I know we just mentioned Hadra Khan of the Pakistan women's soccer team, but she's actually head of a campaign for bringing awareness to women's health and in particular menstrual health in sports. So I just wanted to mention that Florida's softballs, Jordan Matthews, who sent the Gators to the Women's College World Series with the walk off three run homer and beat Texas A&M. By the time you hear this episode, either James Madison or Boston College would have won the NCAA lacrosse championship to congratulate to the women's, women on both teams for making it to the final. Now, can I get a drum roll, please? And badass women of the week are the women who actually just competed in the Archery World Cup, which just wrapped up in Antalya, Turkey. And those specific winners are Ksenia Perova of Russia for Recurve, Yasin Bostan of Turkey for Compound, and then the Recurve women's team of Korea and the Compound women's team of Chinese Taipei. So we see you. It might not be the world's most you know, popular sport, but we see you when you recognize that amazingness and that badassery. Now, what's good? Brenda. Museums. Museums are good. They're so good. They're so much fun. I love being a tourist. So last couple of weekends, I've had some talks in Buenos Aires. And that means that I've got even even though I've been here a lot in in life, it's for work usually. And so I've done a bunch of tourist stuff. And I went it's the national. um, It's not Independence Day, but it's the day that's like the Declaration of Independence here, the Cabildo, which is 25th of May. And so all the museums are open and kind of bustling. And I've been doing a ton of them. And I just love public historians. I love the way that they try to make the stories interesting and accessible. And I love looking at costumes from the 18th century. And it's just really fun. So that's what's good in my world. That's awesome. Linz? French Open starts today. Yay! (laughs) Yay! I have been so busy. I mean, we're always busy, but like the things I've been working on have really consumed me in not healthy ways this this spring. So I've not been following tennis as much as I usually do. And so I'm going to change that over the next two weeks. And we will definitely, my co-hosts don't know this yet, but we're definitely going to be talking about it on this show. So stay tuned. Awesome. Amira? My something good is that Samari took up track and field, which made me happy, then ran my events, which made me happy. And you know, if you know anything about me, that it makes me really anxious to be on the sideline during my kids' sporting events. Like, you know, I can barely watch because I'm too invested. So I have to be like kind of casually disinterested to like make it through. And so she was running in the meet and she 
absolutely dominated in her district. There's about 10 elementary schools. There was about, I'd say, 75 fourth grade girls that she was competing against in various events. And she took second in the 50 meters, first in the 100, and the four by one team smoked them so bad that in the landscape version of like my video of the meet, you can't even see another team in the frame. And... I just, my heart was, I was so proud of her. And I was, and she said, mommy, I found a sport that I want to stick to. (laughs) That just, you know, made my day. So that's my big something good. I'm also very glad that we're a feminist sports podcast that is completely chill with kids talking through the attempt to make (laughs) this wonderful (laughs) episode. And then lastly, this is the last week of my 20s, guys. So I am thankful for um, almost 30 years on this earth. Right? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. We're all excited. Yeah. Say hi. Okay. Oh, Jess. Well, it's really hard to follow up all that adorableness. So I'm going to second Lindsay. I have on my notes, French Open with an exclamation point. I'm very excited and I'm sad. So I'm I'm excited because I'm about to go on vacation. The family is headed to Ireland, but I will be gone for the next two episodes. So Lindsay will have to really hold it down for the tennis excitement on this podcast. And I just wanted to also mention the WNBA. We're only like, we're just into the season and there's already been like, a series of amazing, close, really um, well-played games that have been so exciting to watch. And that has just given me so much joy. I get to see the Minnesota Lynx today. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) I'm so jealous. I'm going to say what's good is Sadio Mane yesterday. He made me really happy despite, you know, the the, uh, turn of events and the results of the Champs League final. I also want to sort of acknowledge babies generally babies not just on the show like zachary's uh, you know one of our low-key co-hosts but also i'm just visiting my aunt and there's two babies who are in the home and it's been wonderful i watched one with my baby nephew zidane his name is zidane actually we so we watched the final together and it's been a really long time since i've had babies like that around me and it was just it was wonderful and sweet i also got pooed on yesterday during the champs league final so but that's okay it happens and uh that's fine it was very rough It it does. does. He leaked. He leaked. And he leaked onto me, which was just reminiscent of what Sergio Ramos did to Mosala. So that was fine. And that's about it. The weather's getting better. And I am also, what's good is summer tires. It's a thing. You get to take off your winter tires. You put on your summer one. And it's for sure there will be no more snowstorms. So that's what's good for me. Oh, my gosh. That is so Canada. I love it. That's all for this week in Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives in SoundCloud and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate all your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe, rate us, and share. But also let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down, on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod, or on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. You can email at us burnitalldownpod at gmail.com and check out our website www.burnitalldownpod.com where you'll find previous episodes transcripts and a link to our patreon we would appreciate you subscribing sharing and reading our show which helps us do the work we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned on behalf of amira jessica 
Lindsay, Brenda, I'm Shireen, and thank you for joining us. Zachary, say bye-bye. Bye-bye.